The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, the 17th chapter and the 12th verse. The 12th verse in the 17th chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. In this verse, the prophet continues what is at one and the same time his denunciation of the sin of his people, the children of Israel, his contemporaries. Not only his denunciation of their sin, I say, but his expostulation with them and his final attempt to plead with them, to realize the situation and to repent and to turn back again to the Lord. Now we've been studying this great statement of his that's to be found in this chapter for a number of weeks. And we have found that uh, his uh, heart is so full of sorrow and of compassion for them that he varies his expressions. He tries by open, explicit statement, by picture, by analogy, by argument, by reason. He tries every conceivable method uh, to plead with them to awaken to a realization of the true situation. Things had gone from bad to worse. The enemy was at the gate, as it were, and at any moment might descend upon them. They were in trouble, and in a sense they knew that, and yet they were not able to see the cause of their troubles or the greatness of their trouble, and they persisted in their unutterable folly, in their rebellion against God. He says that their sin is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It's plain, it's open, it's obvious. Not to them, but to him and to all who still were godly and upright in Israel. And he's tried to show them that. As I say, he's put it in various forms. Now, here again he comes back to explicit statement. And what he's emphasizing here in particular, is something that we've already seen in a slightly different form earlier in our study of this section. Sin is not merely the committal of acts, individual acts, which are wrong or are foolish or are transgressions of the law. That is one form that sin takes. But there is something else about sin, and it's much more serious. The terrible thing about sin is that it implies an attitude which is wrong and which is false. As he's been pointing out, uh, the ultimate word about sin is that it's folly. The sinner is a fool. And this folly so often is the result of his ignorance. That is why uh, so constantly you find, especially in the New Testament, as we are considering on Sunday mornings these days in working through the epistle to the Ephesians, the prayer for enlightenment, for minds that are enlightened and given understanding. 
Sin is ultimately, I say, unutterable folly. And it is something which results from ignorance. And that is the thing in particular that we've got in this verse that we're looking at tonight. It was bad enough that Israel had played the fool. It was bad enough that they'd been guilty of particular sins. But the sin of all sins, the thing that, as it were, broke the heart of Jeremiah as it did that of all the other prophets was, that these foolish people had failed to realize their own greatness, their own privileged position, their relationship to God. This high privilege that God had given them out of all the nations in the world. You remember the prophet Amos puts it in these words. God addresses them and says, Ye only have I known of all the nations of the earth. He had known them in a peculiar and a special manner. Indeed, he had formed them for himself. They were not a nation like other nations. He had made them out of one man. He had produced them for himself. They were to be his own peculiar people, the people of his peculiar possession. He had set his heart upon them, and he had destined them for great and for glorious things. And he had given a very definite external evidence of this in that he had commanded the children of Israel to erect a temple which was to be the place of his dwelling. And you remember that he had told them to build a special section in this temple, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple, a holiest of holies, an inner sanctuary, where God, as it were, said that he would come down in all his glory and dwell amongst them. That was the whole purpose, in, in a sense, of the tabernacle and the temple that God was telling them in that pictorial, external, objective way that he was going to reside amongst them. That as they went on their journey from Egypt to Canaan and as they were going in to possess the promised land, he, their God, was as it were going to be amongst them. And there at the mercy seat they could go and meet with him and speak with him. That is the whole purpose of the temple, of the sanctuary of God. And all the instructions that he gave with respect to its construction and so on. Now, God, I say, had done all this. Had gone out of his way, as it were, to manifest himself and his glory to them. To say, I will be your God and you shall be my people. That was the covenant that he had made with them through Abram and repeated it again to Moses, you remember. And there he offers them all this that they are to be his people and to enjoy the privilege of his companionship and of his blessings. But alas, this foolish people had turned their backs upon him, had spurned his gracious offers. And what had they been doing? Well, they had imitated the other nations round and about them. They had made gods out of wood and out of stone and precious metals. They'd built themselves temples. They'd erected groves. They'd put these trees in clusters together on the high hills. Listen to him. Uh, whilst their children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. That's what they'd been doing. 
They had forsaken the God of Israel, the Lord God Almighty, and they had made these other gods of their own, the work of their own hands. They had adopted the gods of other nations, and they had bowed down before them and had taken their sacrifices, made their oblations, and thus they were worshipping them. And in doing all that, they had forsaken the Lord of hosts, the King of glory, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. That is what they had done. And that is why I say the, the prophet speaks to them so severely. That is why he condemns them. And he condemns them, I say, for the unutterable folly of it all. This appalling ignorance. This failure to realize all that God was offering them and all that God would be to them and for them. They'd literally left all that and they'd gone to this of all things. The shame of it all. The disgrace of it all. Yea, indeed, almost the incredibility of it all. But it's all due to ignorance. It was all due to their failure to realize these great and glorious and wonderful things. Now, that's the essence of the prophet's message. And I'm again adverting to it and calling your attention to it. Because it seems to me that there is no more perfect representation of the case and the condition of the world this very night than just this thing that we're looking at here together. Like the children of Israel of old, men today are seeking glory, they're seeking happiness, they're seeking safety, they're seeking protection, they're looking for a sanctuary. And they're looking for sanctuaries to this extent that they'll even make a sanctuary of an atomic bomb. It's just an attempt to seek safety, a sanctuary, protection, somewhere to hide yourself, anything to give you some sort of protection. Well, I think you'll agree with me that that is the whole condition of mankind apart from God and outside Christ in the world at this present hour. The world is giving itself, I say, in seeking these things. But it's as obvious of the world this evening as it was of the children of Israel at this particular juncture that all their seeking is in vain, that all their endeavors to find what they're looking for and what they're seeking come to nothing. And the world tonight, with all its striving and all its effort, is bewildered and baffled, it's unhappy, it's ill at ease, it's on edge. It doesn't know what to do with itself nor where to turn. Men's hearts failing them. That's the position. Ah, yes. But you know, the real tragedy in all this is just this again. The same thing as of old. That while mankind is in this condition, it is in it because it is turning its back upon what is being offered it. It's this self-same ignorance, it's this same refusal to look to God and to wait upon God and to listen to God. That is the supreme tragedy of tonight. And that is why, my friends, while I have breath, I shall continue to preach this particular message. You see, atomic bombs are only symptoms. It's, they are not the cause. And all the other things to which men give their time and try to make their important statements, they're all ultimately just side issues. This is the one and only real 
cause of our ills, like these foolish children of Israel. We are looking elsewhere and turning our backs upon God. Now the prophet puts all this in just this one phrase. He says this, uh, this isn't how it should be and this is not how it was at the beginning. He says from the beginning, a glorious high throne is the place of our sanctuary. He said that's the genius of our people, of our race. And all that's glorious in our history, he says, was true because at that time we still realized this. And while that was true of us, at the beginning and subsequently, then all went well. But now, he says, we have forsaken it. Why have you done so? That seems to be his question. Oh, the ridicule of it all. Well, now then, let's work it out together. There are several ways in which we can translate this great phrase. It's here in the authorized version. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Or, if you like, you can translate it like this. A throne of glory on high is from the beginning the place of our sanctuary. Or you can read it even like this. The glorious throne of the Most High is the place of our sanctuary. You notice that the prophet does here something which is very frequently done in Scripture. He is really talking about God. But he describes God in place, in terms of the sanctuary. It's often done. We, we still do it, don't we? We talk about the throne doing certain things, or the crown doing certain things. Of course, a throne can do nothing. A crown can do nothing. Uh, when we say the throne or the crown today, we mean the queen. Now the prophet is using that kind of, uh, that kind of language. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. But he's not thinking of the throne only, the occupant of the throne. Not the sanctuary, but the one who makes the sanctuary the sanctuary. That's, that's his idea. So that I can put my message to you hurriedly and briefly this evening in this form. That men in sin displays his crass ignorance and his unutterable folly with respect to certain things. As he thus lives his life of sin and turns away from God, what is he doing? What is he turning from? Well, for one thing, he is turning away from the glory of God. A glorious high throne. A throne of glory. It's a very special throne, this. And the great characteristic of this throne is its glory. Now, this is an extraordinary thing. Man, I say, in sin is guilty of failing to realize the glory of God. Indeed, that is the very essence of sin. I'm never tired of uh, uh, quoting the first question in the famous Shorter Catechism of the Westminster Assembly. The reply to the first question is this, the chief end of men is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is the chief end of men. 
Man was made by God, and man is meant and designed to glorify God. Indeed, everything that God has ever made was designed to glorify God, to be an expression of his glory. So the psalmist reminds us, the heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament likewise. Everything in the whole of nature and creation is a manifestation and is an exhibition of the glory of God. But this is true of men in a very special and exceptional manner. For when God came to make men, he said, let us make men in our own image. You see, the flowers and the birds and the little animals and the mountains and the rivers, they manifest the glory of God in that they are indicative of the work of his fingers and of his hands. And there is a glory there which is quite unmistakable. But you see, when God comes to make men, there is something essential. A part of God's own glory is given to men. He's made in God's own image. It's a very profound question there. It's a very profound subject. There are those who would say that the very upright posture of men is a part of this image of God in men and a manifestation of the glory of men that man does not walk about as it were with his head downwards but he walks erect and sees ahead and sees upwards. But in any case we know this that man has been endowed with certain faculties such as the mind and reason and the power to consider himself and to look on at himself objectively. That is something that is denied all animals, something that you'll never find in creation at its best and at its most beautiful. But it's in men, and it's a part of the image of God, a part of the glory of himself that God has given to man. Now man, I say, was meant to manifest this and to show forth the glory of God. And my dear friends, the very essence of sin is not to do that. That is why, you see, some of the most respectable people in the world tonight are as great sinners in the sight of God as those who live in gutters. We tend to think that sin only means particular acts of sin, but there is no sin which is in any way as great as this. Refusal to give to God the glory that is due to his holy name. And there is no man who is more guilty of that than your self-sufficient person than the man who orders his little life and that of his family so perfectly. He divides up his money, divides his time. They're self-contained. They never do anything wrong. They're highly respectable, but they never read God's word. They never pray at night as a family. They don't pray as individuals. They don't go to the house of God on Sunday. They're complete and entire and intact without God altogether. They never acknowledge him. They never thank him. They never minister to his glory. That's the essence of sin. They know nothing about the glory of the eternal and the almighty God. And Israel was guilty of that, as mankind is still guilty of it. But let me put this in another form, because it seems to me to be a part of the essential pathos and tragedy of the modern men. Mankind turns away from God because it thinks that in so doing it's going to achieve some glory of its own. Man's got the idea that to be godly and to be religious means that you're ignorant, that you're superstitious, that uh, you belong to the backwards of life and of civilization, 
And that for man really to declare himself and to express himself, he must forsake all that and live in terms of his own mind. Man's always seeking some kind of glory for himself. And it's amazing to notice the ways in which he will seek this. He seeks glory for himself by means of money. He seeks it by means of learning and understanding and wisdom. He seeks it in terms of his physical frame and prowess. He's seeking it everywhere. People are trying to get into clubs and to get into societies and to get into the so-called higher and highest circles. They'll pay money for it. They'll bribe people for it. They'll buy costumes and wonderful clothing, anything to get into those circles. Why? Well, there'll be a reflected glory. They want honor. They're seeking honor. They're seeking glory. And this is the way the world is seeking it. It's out for this great glory. And yet it never seems to find it. And that is its whole tragedy. I say it's seeking not only honor and glory, it's seeking position and pleasure, it's seeking power, it's seeking happiness and joy. All these things it desires in order that it may display itself and the glory of men. But it doesn't succeed. And it cannot succeed because the Lord has said this, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Or listen to the Son of God saying it, How can ye believe? which seek honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only. You people can't believe, said our Lord to them. Why? Well, you spend your time in seeking honor and glory from one another. You spend your time in praising one another. You write one another up in the press and in your books, and you praise one another, and you make one another great. You're seeking glory, one of another, and yet you've never got it. And you'll never have it until you come to God and you can't come to him while you're doing that. How can ye believe which seek honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Man is seeking honor and glory. And there is the glory of the eternal God which he was meant to enjoy, in which he was meant to bask, which he was meant to reflect in the whole of his being as the Lord of the creation and as God's agent and representative on this earth. Oh, the tragedy of man in sin. Robbing himself of the very thing that he says he desires above all else. Seeking glory and yet denying himself eternal and godly glory. But let me hurry to the second thing. The second thing that he turns his back upon and forsakes is the kingship and the, and the lordship of God. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Man turns his back upon the throne of glory. God is the king eternal, immortal, invisible. And he sits upon the throne of the universe. 
enthroned in ages, ageless splendor. But men in sin knows nothing about the kingship and the, and the lordship of God. But though man doesn't know it, God is the king eternal, I say, and he's seated upon the throne. What does that represent? What does a kingship represent? What does God do as king eternal upon the throne? Well, it carries certain ideas with it inevitably, doesn't it? The first is this, that God is the lawgiver. The king gives all the law. The king is the head of the law. The king is the ultimate lawmaker, whether directly or through parliaments, it doesn't matter. All law derives from the monarch, and God is the king eternal. And as the king eternal, he gives his laws and he exercises justice, and he administers judgment. And that is what makes the sin of the children of Israel so inexcusable, as this prophet and all the prophets go on reminding them. They cannot please the ignorance of the law. The law has been given. God gave it through Moses in that tremendous manner upon the mount. And the voice was heard and the commandments came. The lawgiver, the law of God is plain. We have it here in our Ten Commandments and in the moral law. He calls us to obedience. He calls us to a life of holiness, of righteousness and justice and truth. And isn't this the point at which you see most plainly of all perhaps the tragedy of the modern world? We're all in trouble. This country with its strikes and its lockouts and its disputes, tension in the international realm, what is the matter? Everything's going wrong. Why can't we get on together and live an harmonious and a peaceful life? You know, there's only one answer to those questions. It's this. We don't keep the law. It's our sense of righteousness and of justice, of uprightness and of truth and of honesty that's lacking. Every man is out for himself, and he ignores the law, and therefore there is this confusion and this wretchedness and misery. And man thinks that he can go on like this with impunity. He forgets that God is the king eternal seated upon the throne. That he is absolutely right and just and righteous and without any partiality. He forgets, in other words, that God is the judge eternal. The king dispenses judgment. The king is the final court of appeal. He's the last word. He decides whether directly, I say again, or through his judges. All cases come before him, and his verdict is an absolute verdict. It is always just. It is always righteous. And it is always true. And oh, this is what again makes preaching such a solemn and such a serious matter. That I know that while I'm thus speaking and while the world is going on as it is at this present time, that the judge eternal is looking down. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. He not only beholds, I see him narrowing his eyes, as it were, trying the children of men. All things are naked and open 
and to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The throne, the king, the judge eternal, the absolutely righteous, just, and holy one who is observant of all our actions and who knows even our secret thoughts. And man ignores this and lives his own way according to the rules of society and according to philosophy and what he thinks. Oh, the ignorance of it all. Oh, the tragedy of it all. Oh, the unutterable folly of it all. But thank God I haven't finished with the throne. The throne is not only the place where the king gives his laws and makes known his righteousness and his justice. Thank God it's the place where the monarch also dispenses blessings and gives gifts. It is there that the largesse is distributed. It is there the king's or the queen's bounty is administered. Ah, thank God there is this other side. The king is concerned about his people. He's concerned about their welfare. He's concerned about their happiness. And he shows that he gives them gifts and presents. And God is the king eternal. And oh, my friends, how is it possible that we can ever forget this? He causeth his son to rise on the evil and the good and sendeth his reign upon the just and the unjust. Yes, it's God from the throne that does that. Nothing of these things happens in and of itself. God controls it all. These flowers didn't grow by their own power or their own inherent force. It's God that gives life and being to all things. And thus he sends the rain and the sunshine, the snow and the frost to break up the earth. It's God behind it all, and it's God from the throne as the King Eternal, distributing his munificence, manifesting his beneficence towards the children of men. God on the throne, not Noah's judge, but as it were the father of his people, anxious that they should be happy and that they should enjoy life under his reign. But let me hurry on to the next thing, which is this, the power and the majesty of God. A glorious throne on high. Ah, yes, these foolish children of Israel, when they went to worship these other gods, they built their groves on top of the hills. They wanted them to be high up, you see, looking down upon the scene. They built them on the high ground, on the hills, we are told, whilst their children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. And they said, these are marvelous gods. What are you speaking about, says Jeremiah? If you're interested in height, measure the height of heaven. Measure the height of eternity. That's where God is. A glorious throne on high. High as the heavens. Vast as the world, those are the terms of Isaac Watts. Vast as the world is thy command. High as the heavens, that's where God is. And that is but an expression of his eternal power and Godhead. The power of God to make everything out of nothing. The power of God to see all and to know all. 
the power of God to execute his every wish. He says, he said, and it was done. Yea, the power of God to put into operation his judgment, his estimates. The power of God to consign to perdition or to reward to the glory of heaven. The power of God on high. Isaiah has the same idea, hasn't he? When he speaks of God as the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. Oh, the strength and the power and the might and the majesty of God and his power in addition to bless us. It's all here in these wonderful terms. But come, let me bring it all to this because this is the great statement of the prophet. He says there's a kind of paradox in our life as the children of Israel. The thing seems to be contradictory at first, but it isn't. You see, a glorious high throne is the place of our sanctuary. This is the amazing thing. Man in sin confronts God, who is so glorious, so holy, so high, so eternal, so full of righteousness and justice and truth, who is of such a pure countenance that he cannot even look upon sin. Well, you would have thought to yourself, if there is one place where it would be unsafe for a man to go, it would be to such a God. And yet that isn't so, says the prophet. This is the remarkable paradox. It's there is the place of our sanctuary. Israel in sin. Israel that has forsaken God and has wandered away from him. What's Jeremiah's message to them? He says, come back to God. Oh, says the sinner, how can I possibly go back there? There I shall shrivel into nothing. There I shall be condemned by the holiness of God. That's not a sanctuary. He flies everywhere else, as Adam did at the beginning, when he heard the voice of the Lord God in the garden in the cool of the evening. He went and hid himself. Fool that he was. There was the place of his sanctuary. Now that's the great message, you see, of the Old Testament. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. It's always in God. And here the prophet is simply reminding these people of their own past history. He's in effect reasoning with them and saying something like this as I understand him. Haven't we always found, he says, as we look back across our history that it was only when we were in the right relationship to God that things went well with us. When we made the Lord our sanctuary, no enemy could stand before us. didn't matter how small we are, how we were, how insignificant we might have been. It didn't matter. Look at our people down there in the bondage and the captivity of Egypt with nothing whatsoever, no armaments, nothing whatsoever to fight against the Egyptians in utter helplessness, absolute slaves. And yet we came out, and we came out with a mighty and a strong hand, and we left behind us Pharaoh and all his hosts, drowned in the Red Sea. Why? What was the reason? How did we escape? It was the Lord God. He was our sanctuary. He was our hiding place. He was our shelter. He was our shield and defender. The Ancient of Days was with us. 
It's the Lord, this Lord seated upon the throne, lifted high in his glory. He has always been our sanctuary. And it is only as we have forsaken him, says Jeremiah to these people, that we find ourselves in trouble. Baffled and bewildered, defeated by our enemies, and now with the threat of this Chaldean invasion, not knowing what to do. People, says Jeremiah, though you know you've sinned against him, though you know you have no claim upon his love, come back to him. He is still the place of your sanctuary. He always has been. He doesn't change. You've changed. Come back. And you'll find that he is yet and still the sanctuary. That's the Old Testament message. But my dear friends, it's still true. And you know there is a sense in which you only see the truth of this great verse that we've been looking at tonight when you turn over the pages and come to the New Testament. And there you see this statement expounded in the most amazing manner. The Christian truth, I say, is paradoxical. It's the exact opposite of what you'd expect to be, and it seems to be contradicting itself. And yet it never does. It's a cross, if you like, with one going this way and one going that way, and yet it's a unity and it's a perfect whole. A glorious high throne is the place of our sanctuary. Well, where is it? Where is the sanctuary for men tonight? And the answer is, it's the cross on Calvary's hill. Do you see it? What are you looking for? Is it glory? When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. There is a glory to be seen radiating from that face upon the cross, such as the world has never seen and never known. Glory, the Son of God, substance of the eternal substance, the one who shared the eternal glory with the Father from before time, from everlasting, co-equal, co-eternal. Do you remember his prayer, his high priestly prayer that is recorded in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel? He says, Father, I've glorified thee upon the earth. Now I pray that thou wouldest give me the glory which I had with thee before the foundation of the world. He is the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person. The whole effulgence of the eternal glory is in him. And nowhere does it shine out more wondrously and gloriously than it does upon that cross. For there, with a crown of thorns upon his head, is the Prince of Glory. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 
humbling himself, coming down, taking on him the form of a servant, humbling himself, even unto the death of the cross, and the ignominy, and the shame, and the spitting, and all. Glory! Are you interested in glory? Do you want honor? Well, fly to him. Look at him. See it streaming from his face. It is there you'll find glory. It is there you'll find the holiness of God likewise. And the glory of God is in many ways just an expression of this eternal holiness of God. And it is because God is holy that his son had to die upon the cross. We are going to take bread and wine to remind us of that death upon the cross. Why was it ever necessary? There's only one answer. It was because God is holy. And of such a pure countenance as I've already reminded you that he cannot even look upon sin. Well, there it's all seen, the glory and the holiness. Yes, but not only do I see that as I look at the cross, I see the throne also. I said the throne is a place from which the law comes. And as I look upon that cross, I see God's law asserting itself. I see God's righteousness. I see God's justice. I see all the full command and demand of the law exacting its ultimate ounce. Why is Christ dying on that cross? He hath set him forth, says Paul, in writing to the Romans as the propitiation of our sins. He's done it publicly. Why? Well, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. You see, God cannot forgive us without being just. I say it with reverence. God cannot do it. God cannot deny himself. He is the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And God is just and righteous and holy. And God cannot go back on that. He can't compromise with that. He'd cease to be God if he did. And God can only forgive while remaining just and righteous and holy. And the law must be fulfilled. And Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. The holiness of God is satisfied. The righteousness and the justice and the law of God have nothing further to ask. He has borne the penalty of the law. He has died for our sins. The righteousness of God is vindicated and is manifested and is displayed most gloriously on that cross of all places. The glory, the throne, the king, the judge eternal is there manifesting himself. But thank God also, as I told you, the throne is a place where love and mercy and compassion and kindness and gifts are evident. And there you see it still. Love and mercy and compassion. The goodness of God towards a sinful race. God so loved the world. That he gave, and it includes all this, the cross and the death and the shame. He gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Sorrow and love flow mingling down. 
Oh, the love that flows from that cross. And you see, therefore, finally it comes to this. That our only sanctuary tonight is that cross. It's that glorious cross. It's that throne that we see upon the cross. It's the satisfied justice. It's the love and mercy and compassion. It's the only sanctuary. And I need it. What about you? Does your conscience condemn you? Are you feeling your sin? Do you see your past life and its misdeeds? They're all there. And do you hear the accusation of your conscience? Where can you fly to? Where can you find a sanctuary? Will learning give it you? Will philosophy? Will music? Will art? Will the world? Will life? Will anything? No, no. There's only one sanctuary when your conscience hounds you. And that is the cross of Christ. A glorious throne on high is the place of my sanctuary. It's the cross on Calvary's hill. Yes, and it's there I see the devil defeated. He has put him to an open shame, says Paul, writing to the Colossians by his death. Overcoming them by the very death which they thought that they encompassed and had brought about. He put them to an open shame, triumphing over them in it. So as I am chased and harassed, and tormented by the devil and his emissaries, hurling their evil, vile thoughts and suggestions at me. And when in my weakness I wonder what I can do or how I stand, there is only one sanctuary and it's still the same place. I know that even he was defeated there. He's a defeated foe. The seed of the woman has bruised the serpent's head. A glorious high throne is the place of our sanctuary. And when I doubt myself and doubt whether even the love of God can forgive such a sinner as I am, I again fly to this cross, for there I see love guaranteed. There's love of God that gave itself a sinner's vile, not the righteous. Sinners Jesus came to save. God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more shall we be saved by his life? Irrefutable logic. And when I'm tempted, I fly there. And there's the answer. He who has done that for me can never forsake me. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how much more shall he also with him freely give us all things? I mustn't keep you. Whatever it is that assails me or attacks me. I find a sanctuary from it all. In this wondrous cross. So I understand top lady when he says. Rock of ages. Cleft for me. Let me hide myself.
in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyelids close in death, when I soar through tracts unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, the sanctuary that will never fail in life, in death, even in eternity. Beloved people, fly to the sanctuary. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me. Oh, my Savior, hide. Till the storm of life is past, Safe into the haven guide. Oh, receive my soul at last. Ask him, and he will not receive you. You will find the door of the sanctuary wide open. Whatever your sins may have been, however vile you may have become, though he is so holy, he is a holy love that animates his eternal breast. And the Son has died for you, and the Father will receive you. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. If you are not already in it, enter it now.